J.T. Crowley is talking books. On this show, you'll hear from emerging talent and seasoned veterans from around the world. Hello, I'm J.T. Crowley, and I'm delighted to welcome on the show for the first time Robert Leet from Western Massachusetts in the United States. He's here to talk about his books, Timewise and Resonant. He lives with his wife, and the area that he lives in is around a wildlife sanctuary. The natural world plays a key role in both Robert and his wife's life. Robert has been a structural engineer for some considerable time and has been responsible for the designs of hundreds of buildings. His love of reading, for that he has to thank his mother, who was an avid reader herself and always made sure there was a selection of books scattered around the house at any one time. He liked books by the heroes, Greek and Norse gods. That's what caught Robert's imagination. And he would very often accompany his father on summer holidays, sitting in the cab of his father's furniture truck, and he would have his head either in a book or reading the maps, looking with the way to go forward. In those days, there was no sat-nav. And he would crisscross America with his father, and he spent an enjoyable time with his father. But we're talking about in the 50s and 60s here. Happy days. But what Robert saw of America on his travels then is totally different to what he sees now in America. So let's invite him onto the show to talk about his books and himself. Robert, before we delve into the books, would you care to tell the listeners and viewers a little about yourself and a bit of the background as to why you wrote these books, time-wise and resonant? Well, your introduction is quite nice. Um, uh, having been an engineer uh, and, and, and studied math and science all my life, it always seems to me that people who, well, not even people who don't study math, but it seems like there's a side to mathematics and to science that's um, that isn't that's neglected. That um, that there's more there's more uh, uh, what do I want to say background to all of these ideas. In one of the books, I, I get into the semantics of words. There's a semantics of words and semantics of ideas that there's always implicit uh, assumptions in there that are not necessarily explored. And I just thought that I'd explore them um, writing novels. And you certainly have explored them. So let's everybody, let's have a look at these books. Now, Robert, let's open the first book you wrote, Timewise. Now, for me, science fiction and time fiction addicts, you're going to love these books and you're going to be extremely interested in this book in particular. It's stuffed full of attention, conflict and suspicions. And it evolves around Ron Larson, a modest, self-effacing teenager and Regina Russo, an apparent physicist. It also evolves around uncharted experiments and a rogue FBI agent who considers Ron and Regina to be state terrorists. Now, we're not going to go into all of the chapters for we would be here forever and a day, everybody. And that's not the concept of the podcast, as I say on numerous interviews that I do. The idea of this podcast is to give you a flavor of what Robert Leet's books are about. And if you want to know the full contents of the books, there's a very simple answer to that. It's called go and buy them. Can't be fairer than that. Um, so Robert and I, before we came on this podcast, agreed what chapters we're going to go in the book says that these chapters um, are, we both felt, best reflect the storyline within. So, Robert, let's go to chapter one. Why did you choose to open the story around a chess game, match competitions? And what's the significance of having Ron, a pubescent foster child teenager coming from a disadvantaged childhood upbringing, interacting with Regina, a university professor of physics 
who is more than twice his age. He's only 14 in this chapter. This is a risque combination, and it, but it's a powerful start. Why the storyline in this chapter? Well, um, I wanted to create as the as the narrator a, a person who, who who didn't have assumptions about what he was about to do. He has really he he's not been brought up in the world of studying this. He happens to have a skill at mathematics, but he 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 has very little assumptions and even desire to get into um into the field as a as a profession. And I just wanted to start that as uh, someone who would be open to the strange ideas that his mentor, Regina, has. As for her, I I can't, the book isn't as explicit about what her desires are. But I think um, using chess as a metaphor, she was looking for someone who she could share her knowledge with and could help her and could carry on her work. And, and she evidently saw in Ron someone who, who would do that. If you recall in the, in the book, for instance, he's winning these chess games without even trying. And, and she says, well, look, if you're, if you're not going to play against me, I'm not even going to bother, you know, play against yourself. And it kind of stuns him a little bit, realizing there's someone he can interact with because up to that point in his life, it's pretty obvious he hasn't really been interacting with people much. You know, he talks about how he's been. Um, ignored by the foster families he raised, not that interested in school. And the only reason he's uh, playing chess is he can make a little money to buy candy bars. So I just wanted to create these two quite different personalities meeting each other in such a way that it would carry through the book. They're very different characters, but they do blend very well, like a lot of the characters in the book, everybody. Now, I have to say, Robert, I was astounded to see how quickly you have moved the character of Ron on in maturity in Chapter 3. Ron is no longer a 14-year-old boy, but now a young man, renting his own apartment and taking in Tom and Cheryl. Now, the character Cheryl, she's a fascinating character, everybody. And as far as I can see, she's a budding botanist studying skunk cabbage. Hmm, skunk cabbage. I had to look that up. But if you want to know <laughs> what that is, go and have a look at the book. But working as a waitress, now she's worked as a waitress um, in a posh restaurant to pay her way. The excursions they take in her old grey car to study the plants are inevitably followed up by scenes of passionate lovemaking in the most obscure scenic places, everyone. Why these scenes, Robert? Is this you adding a bit of sexual mystique to the plot to hold the reader's attention or something else? Why the poker games? And as fast as Chell comes into Ron's life, you take her to Boston. What's going on here? Well, let's start with your first question about his rapid maturation. <clears throat> Ron is in a place of swing, sink or swim. He has really no help. He's kind of on his own and he's just struggling to, to survive. And so uh, he happens into renting the apartment. Uh, his land, landlady actually helps him do that because she just wants someone to stay there and um, didn't want it to be empty in the summer. But it's really He's he's struggling, and although he's he's doing pretty well, and he's obviously a bright guy, um, he does have troubles, as we see, as you'll see in the book. So, um, so it's really a matter of desperation is what what's propelling him forward at this time. Um, and yeah, Cheryl Cheryl's a pretty wonderful um, character. Uh, I guess I can go forward. I mean, Ron has several, several women that he, he has intimate relations with. Um, but one of them is not his mentor. And, uh, that's often to his dismay. And that's one of the propelling, uh, themes in this book, I think, is his interaction with this older woman who he's really in love with. 
does not have that kind of feeling toward him. But you take, you know, them to all sorts of places and when they're looking at the skunk cabbage, don't you? Well, yes. I mean, she actually studies all sorts of animals. Skunk cabbage is interesting because it comes up so so uh, early in the year. And so that's the particular first one that they they uh, do. They, they look at all sorts of plants. Uh, that's not a specialty. In fact, she even says it isn't. But it's an interesting plant because it blooms very, very early in the spring, sometimes late winter here, and literally is the only thing out and will pop up through the snow even. So it's just an interesting thing that, um, you know, they look at it and then they have to go back six months later to, to find it. So that's that's one. But I, it, it is a vehicle for one thing. I just wanted to to uh, create create the background of his introduction to this to the wilderness of Massachusetts that he had no, no idea was even there. In fact, he's totally surprised uh, that it even exists, even though he grew up in it, which I feel a lot of people in Massachusetts are like that, frankly. Uh, but it's a wonderful place and it's wonderful, wonderful areas. And I just wanted to also describe them and get people to visualize this area. <laughs> Robert, let's go to chapter four. Cheryl has left the scene, but Ron still has thoughts for her. Regina is brought back in. Ron's got a new job. He's selling TVs. Ron comes from work one day and finds Regina sitting on his doorstep, so to speak. She offers to pay for his future education, but only if his results are all grade A's. He progresses from college to Northern University. Ron is still recovering from his fight in the previous chapter. His hip dislocation never really recovers fully. Regina's payments mean Ron has sufficient to live off. Regina sets Ron some homework of her own. Physics, as you know, Regina describes reality as being shaped by forces. Now you talk about Isaac Newton's laws, attractions between the sun and the planets. Four forces, gravitational, electromagnetic, strong and weak. Why the subject matters here and why is Regina so interested in Ron? What's she up to? Well, I think, um, I think she recognizes from the beginning that he's going to need help. But, but it's only going to work if he wants it. You know, so she, you know, until he really decides that he needs something, um, her help isn't going to be of any value. And that's why she's pretty strict with him, because she knows that he has the talent to get the age. She isn't setting a, a, a standard for him that's even that difficult for him. But she is saying there's no nonsense here. You're either in or you're out. You know, if you want help, I can I can do that for you. And of course, she's doing something for herself as well. She wants she wants someone to help her. She wants an aid. She wants to pass down this knowledge, because as it becomes clear and later on in the book, she really has to keep what she's doing secret for for various reasons, and uh, that's almost an impossible task for a human being. So I think there's an emotional thing here. Plus, also, um, they have different skills, and, and she really relies later on in the book on some of his skills. So I, I think that it's a mutual thing, but I think it's a recognition on her part of um, that here's here's someone who has some ability, but without someone to step in and to, and to push him, uh, it's not going to go anywhere. It's going to continue flailing. I think that, I think frankly, that's true of all of us. We all we all need help to get by. <laughs> oh, oh, we do indeed. Absolutely. Yeah. Some more than others. Now, give us any help we can get. <laughs> yeah. But I want but there's another question you ask. And actually, there, there's quite a bit of science, quite a bit of description in science in the book. And it isn't easy. And I, I won't pretend that it is. I think it's written in such a way that if someone's interested in the subject matter, they can follow the logic. Uh, all the way through. But right at the beginning, it's not Regina who uses the word force. She points out that Newton uses the word force. 
And she starts this conversation, and this is where she first uses the word semantics. And she points out that force has assumptions just in the very word that makes us think of it in a way that may not necessarily be um, fruitful. And so right at the very beginning, um, what I'm trying to point out is that we can have these assumptions about what we're studying without really uh, analyzing the assumptions. And I think that there's a a little discussion right at the beginning that begins to open this up that I really want readers to think about as they go through the book. So that's why the the whole discussion on forces start, because it starts on the fact that Newton had to create, he not only had to create the ideas, but he had to create a language to discuss those ideas. And the the word force um, meant something, you know, it, it wasn't an obvious choice for what he was doing. And in fact, they go into a conversation where Regina, um, says maybe we could use another word instead of force. Maybe we could use the word command. And so there's this whole discussion of the semantics. So I think this is a fairly important part of the book to get into the spirit of, of what I'm trying to do, writing about it. I totally agree with you. Um, now, there are 31 chapters in this stunning book of yours. So let's go towards the end of the book, chapters 23 and 25. Now, in chapter 23, you start off with Ron and Regina on a roof, hmm, having a conversation about string theory. Now, when I look that up, string theory states that all matters consist of vibrating strings embedded in extra dimensions we can't perceive. In fact, there needs to be 11 dimensions, seven of them hidden from us. Somehow, for the theory to work for years, you say. It's been a darling of mathematically minded physicists. You talk about subatomic collisions that inspired string theory, same way, patterns, vibrating objectives, relativity, and quantum mechanics, Newtonian space. What have you got these characters on the roof talking about here? What are they pondering over? And so the issues they're talking about how important is the story in this chapter to the rest of the book? Yeah, that's a, that's a fun chapter. One of the ideas that comes out in that is uh, Regina kind of admonishes uh, Ron that she's really not interested in technology. She's using technology for another means. And what she is interested in is the nature of existence. And she's very clear on this throughout the book that it's really just the, 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 the wonder of, of being, uh, alive, of being aware, which is a very important word in this uh, book. Um, and that's what her driving force is. And she wants to make sure he understands that. So to go on about the string theory, again, this is similar to the discussion of force. String theory, um, I'm not even sure it's still uh, a darling of physicists. There's a lot of physicists who feel people have wasted their careers creating great mathematics on a physics theory that, that will never go anywhere. I'm not released, really, you know, I'm not a physicist at that caliber that I can discuss where it is right now. But it's been a very difficult, um, very difficult, uh, career choice because it really hasn't come up with physics that that's that really explains anything there's so many variables involved regina's explanation of that um she compares it to a camera she says if something was vibrating you think maybe there's an earthquake and everything's vibrating she says actually it may be the camera that's vibrating and that's what she says is wrong string theory is they're looking at the wrong thing vibrating so so again, it's her trying to look even deeper than the normal physics into what are your assumptions when you see these vibrations? And is, is that assumption warranted? Maybe there's something else going on that it makes it appear what, you, what you're seeing, but that's not really what you're seeing. So that so it's an important uh, discussion, again, uh, giving her frame of mind of how to, how to look at things differently. 
Let's go I to that. Oh yeah. You know, I think the whole book, you know, with the concepts that you're putting together is is fascinating. And I found it very gripping. And you know, as I said to you before we came on to do the recording, this was a book that I had to spend a lot of time on to get to understand what you were driving at. And it took me a little time. And I just hope I've got the the theme right here for you. Now, the last chapter we're going to have a look at is chapter 25. Here we have Regina talking to Ron about quantum clocks, providing ideas on her, you know, on her ideas on the origin of dark matter. More experiments with quantum clocks about Regina wanting to talk, take further steps to prove her theory about dark matter, namely that it's a vestige of a disturbance in space-time caused by a collision with another universe in the first fraction of a second after the Big Bang. You have a trip to Nevada to buy a ranch. I thought, uh, what's going on here? So this is a busy, busy, busy chapter, Rob. What are you portraying here to the reader? Where are you taking the reader here? Well, it's a good question. Um, up to this point, I think Regina almost is an ephemeral, super, supernatural person. I mean, she's she just seems in charge of everything. But I think at this point, she's facing some of the limitations of her life and her mortality and, and whatnot. And she's trying to find a way so she isn't so isolated that they're there. Because up to this point, all of their studies um, uh, have been, she, she considers them too dangerous to allow humans, you know, to allow it out into the human race. So she's, her whole life has been around keeping it secret, you know, as kind of a Captain Nemo uh, type of thing. And so here she's proposing that maybe there are experiments they can do um, that will allow her to open up. And so that that's one of the things that's happening here. So she's trying to break out of her her own limitations and trying to find a different way of, uh, you know, so she can share her knowledge. And the ranch in Nevada? Well, uh, I mean, one of it, I mean, it's just part of me just loving to describe things, but there's no better place to have an isolated explosion than a deep mine in Nevada. That's, <laughs> uh, you know, that's mm-hmm. where... Uh, it wasn't where the first atomic bomb went, but sure a lot of them went off there, you know, in deep mines, because it's a great place to do that. <laughs> it is, and when you look at the chapter, everybody, whoa. <laughs> but Robert, let's uh, let's leave time-wise now. I think we've covered that off in sufficiently enough for the audience, the viewers, the listeners, to get an understanding as to what this book is about. And if you want to know more, everybody, well, it's a very simple answer go and have a look at the book. Now let's turn our attention to the second book you've written, Resonant. Here you daringly examine another compulsive area in science, which evolves around how reality aligns itself in levels of scale that oddly enough are divorced from each other. From small to large, you have the various scientific fields of quantum, relativistic, Newtonian, planetarian, astrophysics, rubbing side by side with chemistry and biology. Now you tell this story through the eyes of an aging mathematician and an inner circle of friends and humpback whale language, structure of matter, conflicts with the US Navy and the whales themselves. Why did you feel compelled to write this book? Um, if I may, first I'm going to correct you. Please the, do. The description, the, the description you you, you uh, made of of the different levels of um, of nature and science is true. It's accurate. But in the book, what I said was, I'm trying to write that book and I couldn't do it, and then. This one came 
So it's actually a different book. <laughs> so this book, this book is, uh, is more about, um, I'd say it started off with what are the, what are numbers about? You know, again, it's very similar to time-wise where I want to explore the assumption behind what numbers are. And, uh, um, and and where does that lead and what does it say about the universe and why why do we use them? And it also has to do, and I don't get as much into it as I could, but how how our, our brains are really created so that numbers are seem like the most natural thing in the world. Most people, when they think about mathematics, that's the first thing they think about is arithmetic and adding and subtracting. But what I'm pointing out in this book is that numbers are actually only relevant because of the type of universe, the type of world we live in. And and I'm trying to explore what created that kind of world. That's a fascinating theory. Hmm. You know, uh, Robert, like in the first book, Time Wise, let's give people a, a tantalizing glimpse um, as to what they can expect within the chapters. So again, we've chosen some chapters, everyone, that best reflects the overall theme, the concepts of this book. So let's start with chapter one. Here you introduce us to Joseph Tennant, who you state is a problem solver, and his milieu is mathematics. He's not a young person. And for me, this was quite striking. You gave him the characteristics of Tourette's. Now, when I look up the uh, definition of Tourette's, it's a neurological condition that causes a person to make involuntary movements and sounds called tics. He lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, having come from South Dakota. He's a widower of 15 years with his wife, Georgina, succumbing to breast cancer. He's taught at various prestigious universities and has used his mathematical research, you know, for jobs in defense, technology and manufacturing, albeit these positions of his own choice were short lived. Why this character? And the, why did you give this character the, the characteristics that you have, you know, the Tourette's? So you've given him, you know, a sort of, you know, a very strong start off in this book. So I'm thinking, how relevant is the character Joseph to the overriding storyline of this book and his characteristics? Yeah, well, I, I wanted to create uh, a character who's obviously competent. And I think, yeah. you know, it's pretty clear that he was very successful in his career. And in fact, he states his jobs were short-lived, but it was just because he was bored, he got bored with them and wanted to do something new. But he was, he said any place he worked, he could go back to because, because he was good at it. But on the other hand, he's a bit of an outsider and not afraid to be an outsider. He's been like that all his life. And he, he, um, and given what goes through the book, it's essential that he's able to, to confront this and to look at, at, uh, you know, at society and at science and at everything from a from a clear clear perspective of someone who isn't uh, feel compelled to agree or be part of anything because um, he's kind of put in a position where he is he, uh, he, he's in uh, what I want to say uncharted waters. <laughs> waters being kind of a metaphor, saying it's about whales too. But I just wanted to have someone who. Who, who is strong enough to be able to do that uh, and not not feel uh, estranged from that type of existence. That's how his whole existence has been. He's not intimidated by authority, let me put it that way. Sure. And why the Tourette's? Well, it's just, I mean, uh, it's just another, it isn't totally irrelevant, except that it did, uh, it did keep him out of the war. You, you notice he, he uh, ah. I don't know if you know how the civil uh, secrets, the selective service, I should say, worked in World War II, but it was run by local people. 
And uh, in this case, um, I think he makes a statement that, that uh, it was his his high school coach or one of the high school coaches who was the local agent who, who chose who go, who went and who didn't. He says he was just to- so totally unnerved by this guy with these twitches that he refused to put him in the army. And that's why he was able to go um, to university at that time instead of into the, into the service. So it was kind of a thing where on the one hand, it may seem debilitating, but on the other hand, it allowed him to, to live the life he did lead. So, it's, you know, it's just one of those things that happens. I wonder why you gave him that characteristic. Oh, well. Yeah. Now, Robert, in Chapter 3, you set up a meeting at a local cafe shop between Joseph and Jerry and Sonia. Now, for me, Jerry strikes me as a zany, off-centred character, with Sonia being, how shall I say, more balanced, you know, within society. Sonia has filled Joseph in as to her and Jerry's situation and their relationship with the US Navy, who want them to try and yet to fail. Where are you taking the reader here with the storyline contained within this chapter and the book so far? And how does Clive fit into all of this when they met up at Huxley's? Well, Clyde, you haven't described who he is, but Clyde is a <laughs> uh, very secretive, possibly CIA operative. No one, no, he never is very clear about what he does, but he travels all over the world troubleshooting for, uh, as it becomes uh, clear later, U.S. interest. And, and he has his own view of what that means, too. So he's, so, uh, so basically what I'm doing is setting up a scene where, we're going to have a sec. So, so Sonia and and Jerry are part of this Navy research um, uh, program uh, researching humpback whales, but uh, but the Navy doesn't want them to succeed. The Navy isn't giving them any help at all. They uh, and so Sonia and uh, Joseph set up a second research using the same kinds of data that the Navy has, but really trying to find out what's going on. So it's like a dual uh, research where the Navy on the one hand is doing its own thing, and these people are doing their thing, feeding off the data that the Navy doesn't really want people to know about. So it's it's uh, so that's where this starts right here in this chapter. You begin to see these characters and, and how this is shaping out and how, how um, how Sonia is very unhappy with her situation. And poor Jerry, he's just, uh, you know, he, he's brilliant in his own right, but he has, he is a nervous, nervous individual and uh, um, he doesn't handle the stress that well. And that's, that's why earlier I say about Joseph, I wanted someone who could handle the stress of, um, of the secrecy on what it would take to operate uh, against the wishes of the Navy which is not not a very uh, good thing to do. <laughs> Navy's pretty pretty ruthless. <laughs> the Navy's the US Navy's pretty powerful, you know, particularly in a, in America. It is, it is. I, I once uh, uh, Jerry at one time put, points that out. He says, "Do you know what they really that what their purpose in his life is? It's to you know destroy anything in their way. That's that's their purpose. That's and uh, and it is true uh, that it would take a lot to uh, stand up to Navy." You know, I just asked the question because I wanted you to tell the audience, you know, the relationship between these three characters, which is so wonderfully yeah. knit together. And that's why I asked the question. Yeah, yeah. Robert, let's swiftly move on and look at Chapter 11. Um, it's been a year nearly since Joseph met up with Jerry and Sonia and Clive. Joseph is describing how good he feels to be alive in the fall season with the leaves turning, etc. When Clive comes up behind him, you touch on issues like Kuwait, you've got Saddam Hussein, you've got Iraq, and Joseph asking, is Clive going to Romania? You actually say in the book, Ceausescu being small potatoes, hmm. and the situation in Lebanon. And I felt this chapter was very interesting, and the chat between Joseph and Clive as they head towards the Plough and Star pub for a beer, I thought that was wonderful. My question 
is, is the story here you twisting the plot? Spill the beans as to why you're talking about the subject matters contained within this scene in the chapter. Well, ah, I'm trying to think about how to um, how to characterize the conversation. I mean, um, Clyde is someone who clearly has no problem either being an authority or going against authority. At one point, he, he mentions that he spent his whole life just dealing with nefarious regimes. I don't think it's in this chapter, but but he's like a CIA troubleshooter. And in fact, at one point, he's uh, he's talking about the, um, um, uh, was it uh, Ollie North and Robert McFarland screwing up in Iran back when Carter was president, because this takes place there. And basically saying, geez, I wish I had been there. It would have been done right <laughs> if I had been there. This, none of this trouble would have happened. Uh, and in fact, when he says Ceausescu was small, small potatoes, um, what he's referring to, if you think about historically, what happens is very shortly after the Berlin Wall falls. And Clyde is intimating that he had something to do with that as well. So, so he's this very worldly, a physically powerful person, you know, who really, really enjoys and understands Joseph. And they get along very well because they both consider themselves to be outsiders. At one time, Joseph actually says that they worked together on a project and they were never really part of the team because they were a little too sardonic and a little too uh, cynical for everyone else, you know, because they have their own way of looking at it. So this is the character that... Uh, that Clyde, Clyde is, you know, and what he's talking about, you know, and about, and, and so he talks a great deal about, um, um, you know, gives a different perspective on on you on power and how the world events occur. You know, I think, in fact, this is the scene that you say in Lebanon. This is the scene where he has someone say, um, "Give this Lebanese." Uh, uh, kind of proverb or whatever saying that wealth can give up wealth but power can never give up power and i actually heard a teenager say that from from lebanon during the time that, that when uh, israel invaded and destroyed the lebanese government and the aftermath and everything and someone asked him well do you think this will help the government get together and the kid said no he says pop let Wealth can give up wealth, but power can never give up power. And that's like one of the themes throughout this whole book is what happens when you have power when you're trying to hold on to power. Um, so that so that's basically where that whole chapter, I just want to introduce that as a background so that, um, you know, and, and it, it makes it even more formidable what Joseph is trying to go up against his friends and more clear. Robert. Where do the whales, you know, the humpback whales, which you talk about, you know, so often throughout the, the, the book, you know, the vocalization they make for communication and sensation fit into the overall storyline? And why did you choose humpback whales, you know, as opposed to other whale species? And why whales? Now, why not another animal species, you know, in, in the animal kingdom? Why the humpback whale, well, basically? Well, for one thing, whales are the most likely animal we know of that might have a language because they have such wonderful and complex vocalizations that we don't totally understand. So it was, it was more believable that they would have a language than any, any other species. And also they're, they're, they're incredibly intelligent. We don't, you know, I mean, they probably have the largest brains that have ever existed, you know, and, uh, um, so they're just a very good uh, way to create that type of a situation. I mean, because frankly, we don't know that what I have said is untrue. <laughs> I mean, maybe they do have a language and maybe they are that smart. We just don't know. There's there's things that they do that are just incredibly. But why whales and why water? This goes back to what I was saying about numbers. So I, I will explain a little about that. What I want to do is create a world where there were things that we think of that we count don't really exist. 
in our world, we use mathematics, we can use it for counting time, we can use it for measuring distances, we can use it for counting things. But whales uh, would like to be able to count distances, speed, all that stuff we, it, 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 it's proposed, but that doesn't exist. And so what I'm pointing out is that the basis for even things existing in, the, in our universe and for numbers is actually resonance. And that's, uh, I get into a little mathematics about it, but whales are a very good way of doing that because they live in a liquid world where individual, you know, things don't exist. Everything flows into each other. I mean, I make a comment, well, there's individual whales, but that's about the only thing that would be individual in a humpback's life. Even their food, they consume by the millions. They consume krill, you know. <laughs> they don't. It's not like they go out like a killer whale and get a, a, you know, one thing. They go. They just consume huge amounts of stuff at one time. So yeah, I just wanted to set up something that was uh, that, that lived in a world where there's nothing that's countable, and begin to talk about numbers, how they are created, given that kind of a world. I see. Fascinating, isn't it, everyone? I have to say, Robert, I hope so. I hope absolutely. people enjoy it because, because starting with numbers seems like the simplest thing in the world. And yet, when you look at it from this perspective, it's one of the most amazing things. Yeah. Numbers and writing. What a clever guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Writing is pretty amazing. Two languages. <laughs> uh, that's even, yeah, exactly. I have to say, Robert, I'm fascinated with the chain of events in chapter 15. Um, here you take Joseph away from Boston to California to hook up with Marilyn, who's, you know, as far as I can see, a very interesting character. They go out for meals, make love, and head up to the mountain in mountains, a place called Shanti Shanky, and up there to rekindle and catch up with previous people in the book. What's the purpose of the scenes here? And as we're more than halfway through the book, do you think the narrative theme is enticing enough to want to make the readers go right to the end of the book? Say that question again. Do I think what? Do you think that this chapter is enticing enough to make the reader want to go to the end of the book? Well, I, I kind of hope so. For one thing, I think it brings a whole new cast of characters alive. Yeah. And, and one of the things that is occurring here, so uh, so going back, so Joseph is trying to get information that the Navy has had that they're keeping secret of. And he does that by talking to um, the, one of the owners of this this farm that they go to. And this chapter is describing the farm after she has she's been able to relinquish the burden of having this secrecy. So now he goes back and it's like a totally different farm. She's like a totally different person because she no longer has this burden over her. And I just wanted to kind of, you know, put that on because this is something that, you know, this is one of the things that's through the book is they got yeah. this this thing going on where they're fighting the name. Maybe. And I wanted to show, you know, a more relaxed uh, thing that could have occurred, you know, if he wasn't doing that, you know, it's like, uh, and, and, and really what the burden is trying to do something so, so momentous. And I hope it's enticing. I really do. <laughs> yes. Um, I just wanted your view on that. That's why I asked the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and if you think it's enticing, everybody, well, make your own decision. Don't we go and have a look at the book now, Robert? We agreed on the chapters that we're going to talk about, or the areas of the scenes we're going to talk about in both these books. But for in this book, resonant, you wanted to go to uh, chapter seventeen, and I was intrigued as to why you wanted to go there. So, you know, can you tell the listeners, the viewers, the audience what's going on here? I know what's going on here because I've looked at the book. But I want you to briefly tell us why you wanted to go to Chapter 17, what's so relevant about it. Please tell the audience. Well, 17 is a bit of a, a detour. Mm, it uh, is. Well, you, you it agree? Is. It is, yeah. yeah. But it's... Uh, uh, um, I, 
maybe I just like the characters. I don't know. They've made this trip. They've, they've discovered what they wanted to on the trip. And now they're just on their way home. And they run into a family. Um, I never clearly state it, but I think it's pretty obvious. These are indigenous. Uh, this is an, a family of indigenous uh, people who are making their way. Uh, and, and they've been quite successful. But it's, there's a whole discussion of what success means. Uh, among there's three brothers, well, there's actually, and there's a sister, and there's this whole family, and they obviously love each other. They've all had very different lives with different kinds of success, and so there's a whole description there of what success in a and a family, and you know, of individuals means, and and what's truly successful, and what may be apparently successful, and not not so, not so much. And I just wanted to put that in there. Um, uh, and it gives it gives and it's and it's a counterpoint to Joseph because he's pretty much as I said in the beginning a problem solver, and this gives a different perspective of people who there's at least a couple who are comfortable with themselves and not trying to solve any problems. They're just uh, quite happy, uh, very aware, but quite happy just observing and not necessarily puzzling over things. They they don't have quests. And so I just wanted to have a little counterbalance there, a little uh, different kind of thing uh, to put more in perspective what he's trying to do. And also to put questions in his mind as to why he is doing what he's doing. It brings a different aspect to the overall story. That's what I saw in that chapter. Good, yeah. Um, Robert, so so there you go, everybody. That's, those are the two books. What's next for you? I, do you intend to write any more books or is this it? What's your plans? I, I hope to. I'm, I'm trying to, to, I haven't really started writing one. Oops, sorry, I, I wrote talked over you. Um, I, I have a third one in mind. Uh, I haven't started on it earnestly. Um, I hope these, there is a weakness or maybe it's a strength. I don't know. Both of these books have a fair amount of, science and, and math. Not that you have to have a background in it, but you have to have enough interest in it to wade your way through some of the theories um, to understand the concepts. I'm going to do the next one. I'm going to try to still have a very uh, interesting scientific background to it, but with a lot less uh, necessary theory. I, I think I'm going to be able to do it. It'll be a different kind of book. So and it also won't be first-person narrative, so be a, a different novel. Um, and we'll see if I, I get to it or not, if I can finish it or not. It's, it's a lot of work writing a book. It is. And if you think that, you know, I say to a lot of authors, you know, if you think that writing the book's the hardest bit, it's not. It's marketing the book and getting it out. That's the hardest bit. Um, Robert. Well, it, that's true. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> no, it is true. I know it's true. Who, Absolutely, it's... who do you want to see reading your books? Uh, all generations? Who? One of the things that's been interesting to me is I see people from all sort all over the world reading it. Of course, writing in English is nice because I don't have the uh, means of having it translated yet. But, uh, but it, um, I mean, I would like, almost, I, I wrote them so almost anyone who really likes to read could read them. Uh, and really, I have no preferred audience. I, you know, I, I just wanted to get different ideas out there that I don't, I don't think are given enough, enough credence. Uh, it's, it, it always reminds me of what's his name? Uh, us. It was snow. We're talking about two cultures, the math and the liter, you know, that they're separating. I'm, you probably are quite well aware. And it's very true. They have separated. And I would just like to introduce the literary world to the concepts that are behind, they're behind this video. You know, quantum physics and relativity are not obscure things. They're used in everything we make anymore. And, and numbers are obviously used in everything. And I just wanted to give some background to all of this stuff. So people who don't normally think about these things would understand there's a lot more to it than memorizing your multiplication tables. There's, there's, uh, there's a whole world out there of looking at the world a little differently. There's a whole 
Um, in fact, uh, in the first book, Timewise, Regina Russo mentions that one reason you want a, a better theory is it'll make you ask better questions for the next theory. And, and that's basically the, the philosophy I have in both of these books is if you look at something different, it'll make you look at it, you know, in the future. Yeah. You'll explore different worlds and you'll see different things. And that's really. Where can people get your books from? Right now, uh, Amazon, uh, you can get it either paperback, both of them, either paperback or Kindle on Amazon. Um, as you mentioned, marketing is the hardest part. And, uh, this is, this is part of phase two of marketing, even making this video. I guess my next, next thing is to, uh, find other ways of getting it out. Cause there's, there's other methods where I could, you know, get book, book, book uh, bookstores to order them. And, um, and there's other, there's better places for them to order than Amazon. So I, I basically have to, um, and it's one reason I haven't even started so 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 much on my third novel. Is I'm really trying to explore this whole new world of marketing. It, it's an interesting thing. Um, there was a time when the author had to get the publishing company to be interested in the book to write it. You know, Prentice Hall, whoever. Now anyone can write a book and publish it. It's relatively simple. But now it's on me to do the work that Prentice Hall would usually do. So. It, it's not easier to get a book out there than it was before in mass numbers. It's just that the step that you, that's difficult is different. And instead of being the first step of getting it published, now it's the second step of getting it marketed. Isn't so it? it's an interesting change. Yeah, it is. Robert Leet, thank you for joining me today on the show. Your books are amazing, and I have thoroughly enjoyed looking at them. Well, thank you. I'm JT Crowley. Thanks for listening, watching, wherever you are in the world. Stay safe until next time.